Welcome to TLD Talks, where we share insights about key legal and business matters that are impacting SMEs today. Bringing together experts from a range of backgrounds, we'll be tackling the issues that matter to you. I'm Ed Simpson, CEO of The Legal Director, and I'm joined on today's podcast by one of our very experienced client legal directors, Chris Parr, and we're going to be having a chat about negotiating, what it is, what it isn't, and the strategies and tactics that you can use to get the outcomes you want. So hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me today. For the benefit of listeners, could I ask you please to introduce yourself and in particular your interest in the art of negotiation? Yes, Ned. Hello. Yeah, I've, I've been a qualified solicitor now for way longer than I like to remember. It's 35 years now. Uh, worked almost entirely in-house for named brands such as Monsanto and spent an awful lot of time traveling the world, indeed, negotiating quite significant transactions. Yeah, China, India, Far East, America, Europe. And uh, many, many years ago, I went on the Harvard Law School program on negotiation and visited the exalted Harvard Law School and was, was educated by them for a short period and have taught negotiation. I just find it a fascinating subject and something which is possibly a bit overlooked. Excellent. Well, let's start off with picking up on your final comment. Why should we care about negotiation as a concept? I think that there is maybe a, a, a belief that there are natural-born negotiators, and, and I've met a few guys or a few people who are pretty good at it, but I think it's something which we feel we should be able to do without trying something that ought to come naturally, but I don't think it does, particularly for most people. It's an art, it's a science, but it should never be luck. So can you talk us through the sort of the anatomy of a good negotiation that you've been involved with. Yes, I'm a big fan of, of anecdotes and stories to illustrate these things. And um, this was an unusual one. This was a seller, single seller, man all by himself, built the business, owned the business, had no one to answer to. And he came up against us, Monsanto. But he came to the table and negotiated. He was the best I've ever seen, I think. He was he was single-minded. He held us to our deal, even to the point on the very last day when we tried to take, I think it was £50,000 out of something like a £20 million deal. Someone in our group found something which they thought was worth 50000 quid, and we put it to him and said, right, we're knocking that off the price. He stood up and left the room. It took us three hours to get him back into the room. And I applauded him, really. For, we all applauded him for that because he, he'd done the things that you're supposed to do. He knew what he wanted. He knew we wanted what he had. He'd fixed the price. He knew he had somewhere to go. There's this Harvard Law School thing called Batna, B-A-T-N-A, which we come back to. He didn't have to ask anybody. He just got up and left. And it shocked us to the point. It took my colleague three hours to get him back to the room. He got all his money and he left a happy man. To me, I always use him as my first illustration of a really good negotiation. So, yeah, some, somebody who'd done his preparation, done his homework, I guess, as well. He knew what he had. He knew what we wanted. He priced it. He knew, yes, the Batman, having somewhere to go. If you're stuck in a room and, and we're the only game in town, then you've, you've got some difficulty. But 
even that's not insurmountable if you're brave enough to say, well, I'd rather not sell it at all and I'll leave the room and I'll keep running my business until something better comes along. You've mentioned this term BATNA a couple of times. Can you just quickly explain what that is? Yes, BATNA is best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's really, I suppose other people might call it fallback. Where, where are you going to go? If this deal doesn't work, where are you going to go? And for this guy, we'll call him Tim, perhaps uh, it wasn't his name, but um, Tim thought he could sell it to someone else, but actually was quite willing to just walk away and not take his £20 million retirement fund and just keep running the business. So he didn't lock himself into, I've got to take this or else, because as soon as we then said, well, we're taking 50000 out of your out of your pocket, what could he say? He would have to say, yes, okay, fair enough, and get, start giving away. And the, the problem with giving away is is once you start giving away, you can end up giving everything away. It's death by a thousand cups. The, the other side of a good negotiator say, oh, he's given up on now. I wonder what else he'll give up on. But, but we used to sit around the room with four of us and one of him, and he was not intimidated by us at all. So that's an interesting point there about sort of who's typically in the room, who's involved in the negotiation. You've been talking about this one example where there was just you know an army on your side and one guy on the other side. Is that usual? It's terribly unusual, and I, I use it as a, again as an illustration of something really unusual. I think the who begins with yourself. The who begins with, am I talking myself out of a negotiation, in in the sense that that we think. Oh, I wouldn't accept that, so I won't ask for it. One of my early mentors, ex-aviation lawyer who was then an engineer, he had a habit of smoking a pipe in the office. It's back that far. And he would look over his glasses at me and say, dear boy, if you don't ask, you can't possibly get. <laughs> and he would ask for the most outrageous things in meetings, and I've seen CEOs cringing. He would ask in the nicest way and often get, if not everything, he would get a lot. So don't negotiate yourself out. Then um, it really, it's yeah. You, you've got your bankers, your insurers, your lawyers, your business guys, the whole team, and different people will will be influencing how the negotiation is to run, both on your side and on their side. One guy, he was pushing and pushing and pushing to get something done by the thirty first of December, and, and and we acquiesced and we we got it done. Only afterwards did we find his bonus was double what it would have been. If he'd gone into the next year, his bonus would have halved for the deal. And, and so it's amazing what will influence people. I'm hearing again and again that doing your homework and preparation, and I mean, I don't know if that was something that you could have found out, but understanding what's motivating your side, but also what's motivating the counterparty as well. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. And the thing to do after a negotiation is to have a bit of a debrief and say, well, what did we learn about that? What did we learn about ourselves? What did we learn about how we did the deal with the other party? We did all set around. Well, we could have found that out if we'd asked the right questions or, hey, Brian, why are you so keen to get this done by the 31st? He might not have told us the truth, of course, but he might have just let slip. Well, it's way better for me. Oh, really? Why? And the, the question why is consistently underused in negotiation. Why do you want this? It's a very, very powerful question. A friend of mine, an American lawyer, used to have a saying, 
please help me to understand. If someone asks you for help, it's very difficult to deny them and say, please help me to understand why you want this completely ridiculous thing that you're asking for. Not you don't say it like that, but but that's your question. Why? Why is it important to you? And then, and then you get them talking. Then you sit back and you have to learn to shut up. I've been on the receiving end of that phrase. Please help me to understand. That was in the context of a deposition, which is a story for another day. But um, yes, it's an interesting way of asking that question. You have to ask yourself why as well. I, I, you might ask for 100 units. I want 100 units. And then if someone says, well, why? You start to unpack the why. You will actually want 10 per month for 10 months. Now, that leads you down a completely different path. And as soon as you know that, you can start, your little brain starts working, ah, well, actually, crikey, I can do 10 times 10 over 10 months way easier than I can do 100 tomorrow. So I can actually actually give you what you want. So I've got to work out, do I want 100 or do I want 10 lots of 10? Is that an issue about not asking for the right thing? So somebody that says they want 100, actually they want 10 times 10. Why didn't they ask for 10 times 10 in the first place? Yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think people go into negotiations believing it's some sort of war that I have to win and you have to lose. And so I, if I want 100, I'll actually ask you for 150 to start with because I know we're going to horse trade, aren't we? That's that's a very unsophisticated way of negotiating. If I go back to my first example there, the guy, he came to the room and said, my number is 20 million or whatever it was. I'm not asking for 10 million more than I think it is. I'm asking for exactly what I think I'm entitled to and, and that's where I will stop. Yeah, not all negotiations can be worked like that. And there will be some toing and froing and, and compromise or, or whatever. And we'll come back to compromise because Harvard has some interesting things to say about compromise. You know, I think asking for what you want, knowing why you want it, how you want it, where you want it, when you want it, all these things, chop up the deal and say, well, I actually want 10 lots of 10. And that's a very different thing to put to you as the supplier, potentially. So thinking about the situation where somebody comes in and is very open and honest and says, this is my number, this is what I want, I'm deliberately not over-egging it because this is what I want. And then thinking about your concept of the Batner, of the best alternative, is that person effectively saying, I'm going to walk away from this unless, unless you meet me at this number? If you have no alternative deal on the table, you have to steal yourself to be ready to leave the room, leave the negotiation and walk away from it. Otherwise, I mean, you, you, so logically, you're sort of fooling yourself. If, if you ask for, for 10, actually what you want is four, then all you can do is once the other side says, no, I can't give you 10, well, how about nine, eight, seven, six, five, four? And then you hit four and they still believe that you're going to keep going down. You undermine your credibility, yeah. Um, so you're fooling yourself if you go in thinking, I'll accept anything they offer me. That's not really negotiation. That's, you know, what's the best you can do for me? Right, I'll, I'll take that then. So I think, yeah, you have to steal yourself to not getting a deal. So you mentioned compromise a couple of minutes ago. And I mean, at the end of the day, isn't that actually what negotiation is? It's everything's compromise, isn't it? My view is no. But it's not to say compromise doesn't have a place part to play but 
at Harvard, what they say, <laughs> compromise is the art of nobody getting what they want. And as soon as that hits, as soon as you look at it like that, you realize why compromise should not be the objective. Again, another Harvard thing is that they wrote the book Getting to Yes, but then they wrote a second book called Beyond Winning. And they have a theory, and this is part of the science, and they'll show graphs and all sorts of statistics to show that by asking the right questions, by approaching the negotiation in the right way, both sides can get more than they thought possible. And they have another adage, they're full of adages and little um, sayings, but there's no harm in both parties getting what they want. Or as they put it, there's no harm in the other side getting exactly what it wants, provided you get what you want. So this idea of compromise, the art of nobody getting what they want, that I find is the most compelling force to not try to go to compromise immediately, if you like, to link it back to the who, who's in the team. We would all keep the what I would call the big guns of the negotiation, the chief exec or the CEO or the most senior person. Keep them till the end. Because in the end, when you're down to the wire on the last couple of three points, we've literally sent a couple of the, the heavy hitters out to dinner together, and they will compromise. But if you start with compromise, I think you end up in a not a very good place. Compromise is a bit of a loaded term, really, isn't it? Because it's there's an implication that you're giving something away. You mentioned earlier that, that idea of some people seeing negotiation as a war where I have to win, and for me to win, you have to lose. Whereas actually what I think you're saying is by asking the right questions and probably having done your research to enable you to ask the right questions, you should be able to find a position where both sides have got what they want. Yes, and there's there several implications of that, what you just said, which is the point I'm making, which is that if it's a one-off deal, if I am come all the way to, from Land's End to John Groats to buy a car off you, and I'm never going to see you again, I'm never going to cross your path, we can get ugly and, and I can upset you and, and we can irritate the hell out of each other and I can screw you down to the floor. I drive away in my new car and I think, ha-ha, I did it over. Fine, if that's how you want to live, it's terrific. And, and in one-offs, maybe it doesn't matter so much. But if I do a deal with you and it's a long, what I call a relationship deal, and it's going to run, for, say, a year supply transaction, are you going to spend the next year trying to get back at me, trying to chisel away and find ways to undo things if you go home feeling bitter and twisted about the fact that I've I've really worked you over, you're going to take the first opportunity to get back. And that, that really is no way to live. It's certainly no way to do business because you harming my business from your secret nest somewhere is not good for me. We aren't going to love each other for the rest of our lives. But battering people around in the negotiation isn't necessarily good for long-term relationships. Yeah. So context matters, I guess, is what you're saying. Context matters hugely. Just um, developing that theme, you've mentioned you know, we, we know that some people are regarded as being better negotiators than others. Some people are better able to take that harder stance. Other people find that more difficult. Do you notice any differences, any cultural differences in the countries that you've negotiated? And it's something I've come across negotiating with people from different jurisdictions What's your experience been? Wide and varied, I have to say. I remember going to Korea 
on four hours notice, the lawyer that should have gone broke his leg. And I was flown out to Korea and we, we went to talk to Hyundai. So we turned up at the first meeting and Mr. Kim wasn't there. We had a meeting with him at 10 o'clock. Yes, but he's gone out. Come back later. So we came back later. He wasn't there. And he did this to us for like three days. And then we went, finally, Mr. Kim was there. And he sat in a pose, which let's say was a very dominant, powerful pose. And he wasn't a big man, but he, he sat and he said, right, this is what I want. This is what I want. He pounded and pounded. And essentially, after a while, we realized he knew that we wanted to go home. And he was just stretching out the time. Every day we were there was costing the company money. Every day we were there was keeping us away from home. I went for two days. I was there for six, I think. And in the end, you know, we said, well, we've got to call us a taxi. Our flight's a book. And he said, yeah, I'll call you a taxi if you give me this on the deal. In the end, we phoned our CEO. I think it was three o'clock in the morning, the CEO's time in London. And we phoned and said, you've got to agree to this. They won't, literally won't let us go home because he won't give in. So the Koreans, I, I mark down as one of the toughest people. The Japanese used to turn up. I used to go to Osaka a lot. And they'd turn up with eight or ten people on their side. We'd spend all day talking to them. The Japanese have a word, hate, which means I hear you, but I don't necessarily agree. And then they would shake our hands and smile and we'd all go home. I go back 12 weeks later and say, right, all that stuff we agreed last time. He said, oh, no, no, we took it upstairs. And they said, no. Three years I went around in circles with the Japanese because they they just had a way of, of not agreeing to anything. It was quite quite clever. The Chinese blew my mind because they were so capitalist. When I first went to China and, and sat with the Chinese, expecting some cliched version of China to hit me, and, and oh my goodness me, no. They knew their deal inside out. They knew what they wanted, and they screwed us to the floor. So certainly try not to go into preconceptions. Otherwise, people are basically human, and there's a sort of commonality with differences. The Americans have their own quirks, you know, and I'm sure the Brits. Harder to see the Brits because I am one, and it's, it's hard to see my own failings. But again, it's all part of that context, isn't it? And part of the homework that you need to be taking into consideration, preparing. Who am I dealing with, and are they going to bring a particular style? I mean, my own experience was dealing with effectively former Soviet Union officials who were then very senior members of an oil ministry in, in one of the former republics. Again, because the the Soviet system was you had your area that you could agree with in and beyond that, you just had to say no. And so we knew that that was going to be, you know, we'd go for a, a day, two day, three day negotiation, but we went in knowing that we probably weren't going to get anything from it, but it was a long game. You had to just play the game. The lesson I learned with the Russians is that when we wrote down even minutes of meetings, they would be taken by the Russian side to their more senior people. And it sort of got locked in much more easily than it would in the in the Western culture. So once we'd written something down, even though it was a heads of agreement or a note, you sort of got fixed with it in a way. And that was a, a lesson. And going back to the Japanese, one, one thing we learned, I spent a long time negotiating with my side, the Americans, who wanted you know, sort of two-inch thick agreements of thousands and thousands of words. And part of the problem with Japanese, they had to translate what we were writing. They had to translate it into Japanese. And if you've ever seen written Japanese, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And, and 
we were asking them to effectively to spend weeks translating these huge documents. And their culture prefers shorter text. I was going to make a similar point, actually, going back to my experience dealing with uh, Russians, that in oral negotiations, if you're working through translators, everything will take at least three times as long. And also be aware of the subtlety of language and making sure the point that you're trying to make is being received in the way you want it to be received. It's very, very difficult. There's a famous, I've never actually checked that it's true, but there's a famous um, story I heard that I think it was at Yalta when the negotiations were going on. The English came in and said, we want to table this. It nearly caused an international incident because the Americans, when they hear we want to table something, it means you take it off the table and put it away. And so when the Brits came in and said, we want to table this, the Americans thought they didn't want to talk about it. And apparently it took some time for someone to realize that they both wanted to talk about it. They just were saying it in a, in a different way. So American English and English English are not necessarily the same. So let alone Japanese or Russian translations. Yeah, the, the subtleties of language are incredibly important to remember. Uh, Chris, has been really interesting. We could go on for hours, I'm sure, but drawing things to a conclusion and summarising what we've talked about, if you can, what would you say are key takeaways for somebody that might be approaching an important negotiation? I think take it seriously and plan. Take some time. And there are various tools that can be used. We haven't had time to get into them, but happy to discuss that with, with anyone who wants to know more. So yeah, plan. Have a batner. Whatever you do, have somewhere to go. Even if it's away and nothing happens after that, and you lose the deal, maybe better lose the deal that way than get completely turned over and, and give away everything. The question why is massive. Ask yourself why and ask the other side why. Because that opens doors that you perhaps didn't even know existed. And I think always seek out the opportunity to grow the deal that Offer people options. Well, have you thought we could do this for you or this for you or this for you? Because probably they haven't or they don't know. As opposed to a position, it's a bit like the trenches. We took positions in the trenches and you know, we all know where that led. Whereas options are open-ended things which give people opportunity. Seek to grow as opposed to close down. Very interesting, Chris. Thank you for your insights and some of the stories you've shared with us today. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our discussion today, you can subscribe to our monthly TLD talks covering a wide range of legal and management topics. You can also find TLD talks on Apple, Spotify and Google. The details are also on our website www.thelegaldirector.co.uk If you'd like help with or training on negotiating, or if you'd like to learn more about the wider work of the legal director and how a part-time legal director can save you time and money, then do please give us a call on 020-3053-8613 or visit our website.